folks, it's Flanders week. The spring classics are back and Flow Bikes has you covered. Watch the Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold, Skel Prix, Brabant Appeal, and more races live and on demand in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Plus, go inside the race with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and other exclusive content. The cobbles are calling, so don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's F-L-O-bikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flowbikes subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports Network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That's F-L-O-bikes.com forward slash velonews. Thanks to Flowbikes for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Velonews podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a cold and gray Tuesday morning here at the uh, home offices outside of Boulder, Colorado. We are likely to be coming to you in your ear holes a, a bit later in the week than normal. I think we're going to be dropping this around midday Wednesday. Uh, we had the opportunity to have the great Mariana Voss on the podcast. And when you have the opportunity to have Mariana Voss on your podcast, you do things like, oh, delay your production schedule so that you can talk to Mariana Voss. We're so psyched to have her on the podcast. She's been on the pod before, and she's going to be talking to us all about her impressive victory at Ghent Wevelgem and what it's like inside this new look Yumbo Visma women's team. So psyched to have Mariana uh, on for the second half of the podcast. But before we get to that, we have so much bike racing to talk about. This is one of those stretches of the season where there is so much racing going on. We've been doing these what races to watch each week columns, and it just boggles my mind where you have major cobbled classics overlapping with huge stage races all at the world tour level, big women's races, smaller races, racing going on all over Europe and the continent. And to think that some of the bigger races aren't even happening because of COVID, uh, it's just a testament to how incredibly packed the pro cycling calendar is. So today we're going to talk about the cobbled classics that went on in the last week, that being E3 Saxo Classic, Ghent Wevelgem. We're also going to talk a bit about the Volta Catalunya, and we're going to preview Flanders because, as always, these awesome Belgian classics and semi-classics are just the uh, – they are – the hors d'oeuvres that come before the main entree, which of course is the Tour of Flanders coming up this Sunday. So on the line to help me talk about all of this bike racing is James Start and Andrew Hood. And James, I want to start with you with the big pressing topic of this week, the news topic. We we touched on it in the last podcast, that being whether or not we're going to have Paris-Roubaix uh, happen this year because you have been at the forefront of this story. And before we get to Flanders talk and breaking down all the cobble classics, um, you have been working your sources inside the French cycling world. And uh, could you give the listeners an update about where we are right now with Roubaix? Uh, I did speak uh, particularly uh, last week with the uh, head of the the Northern Committee for the French Federation. Uh, I don't think he's president, but director of the Northern Committee, and his office is in the Roubaix Velodrome. Um, so, and he's uh, he's written books on history of Paris Roubaix. He has a mammoth collection of Paris Roubaix memorabilia. He's got like nine Paris Roubaix bikes with the mud still on them. He's got a dozen jerseys, including winners' jerseys, hanging on his walls. He got the guy is passionate about Paris Roubaix, knows everything about it, and I can tell you he's he's got his finger on the pulse about 
about the uh, the eventual postponement of it. And he is very pessimistic. He said, uh, Pascal Sargent is his name, and he said it's 99% not going to happen in April and sometime in, in October. So we got a, a prefet, you know, which is the uh, chief legal authority, I guess you call it, uh, policeman in the north, and he just has doesn't really care about cycling, doesn't get it, and doesn't get, you know, it's that that you can have that we've he, you know I think the Tour de France has shown that we can have a bike race in COVID and maintain very high st- standards. But the other fact is that everything from Paris to the Belgian border is pretty much in lockdown. And um, and he's saying if if you know this whole part of the country is in lockdown, we're not going to have a bike race. And he that doesn't mean he can't have a football game in that part of the country because he's perfectly happy with the town of Lille, their football team having games with no crowds, but doesn't want a bike race. Uh, and that's the chief authority. The only way to go beyond that is to go to President Macron. Um, and then you get into a whole other game. I mean, ASO, do they really want to use their cards for Paris-Roubaix when we don't know what's in store at the Tour de France? Uh, I mean, we don't know where COVID is going to be in the sanitary levels and stuff are going to be in, in less than 100 days now for the Tour. But the Tour de France, ASO absolutely wants to make sure that that happens. So I think that say I think my gut reaction is, they're not going to go out too much on a limb to to get go above the the head of the northern region, the prefet of the north, to to keep the April 11 date. Um, and then the UCI, you know, they came out with some sort of a leak, and it's unclear where, but some of the teams got it, and the Parisian newspaper, who was owned by ASO, um, uh, or is it owned by the Amory family who owns Amory family owns the tour. And they pretty much said that, you know, the new dates are going to be in October. So there's a whole lot of things saying it's kind of a done deal already. The only thing that could change and the only reason we still have hope is because ASO hasn't communicated. And we're just trying to figure out why is it because, you know, I I know they were upset to get this leak from the Parisian and and, uh, the UCI. Um, They were really caught with their, uh, they were caught, you know, unaware uh they were actually up scouting out the cobbles and stuff when this came out so i think they were shocked and a bit upset and they're trying to figure out the best way to to uh to to negotiate it maybe they're still trying to negotiate with the prefet maybe we're still trying to negotiate with um with some other powers that be but according to my sources it's kind of a done deal and i i called him last night or asked him last night i said uh any changes here? And he said, no, unfortunately, it's still 99% off in my books. So, you know, the only thing that gives us hope is the silence from ASO because they have to come up um, with an answer soon. And the longer they wait, the more we kind of can hope that maybe it's going to happen. But, um, you know, just don't know. That's one of the bizarre things for me, James, is that, you know, last year, well, I, I can't even remember what the heck happened last year in the fall with all the racing. It was such a blur. But I did feel like we had a bit of a longer lead in to when the decision was made. I mean, here it is a week and a half before Roubaix is supposed to go and the teams and the riders are still left in limbo. And, and to me, that that puts everyone in a really tough situation. Yeah, it, it does, unless they already know. Um, and But, you know, at the same time, last year, the COVID situation in October was not as bad as it is right now. I mean, it wasn't good. And, and the north of France, that, that whole north was already being hit. Uh but you know it's just gotten worse. Um, so you know, and if, if I'm gonna if I'm if I'm gonna look through the eyes of the prefet and be you know you know he was he, maybe he's going hey we can lock the doors on a soccer stadium 
and keep fans out. We can't exactly lock the doors on the Ehrenberg Forest or the Carroll Ford Alarm. There's still going to be fans coming and screaming on the sides of the roads. And Well, it's a story we're going to continue to follow, and James has been on the forefront of it. So, you know, alas, here it is uh, Tuesday, and we still don't have a resolution. But I think we're all, at the, at the very least, hopeful that a decision one way or the other is going to come down shortly. Let, guys, let's talk about the racing. You know, we are recording this Tuesday. We had Gent Wevelgem over the weekend, E3 Saxo, and it comes after this block of just every, you know, classics coming hot and fast, basically, since Strada Bianca. And when I look at the results sheet, you do see um, it really seems like parody might be one of the big storylines of this year's classic season in general, in that I think a lot of us came in thought, thinking this was going to be the year of like Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert, Slugfest, dominating the classics. And as you look at the results and how some of these races have played out, uh, specifically the last two, it seems like the Peloton may be on a more even field than we think. Andrew Hood, what were some of your takeaways coming out of E3 and Gent Wevelgum as it pertains to the wider storylines of the 2021 classic season? Yeah, for me, it was reconfirmation that uh, teammates matter in these races. Uh, you can be strong as an individual, but that's never going to be stronger than a team. And just soon a quick step proved that at uh, Heralbeke. And even while Van Aert won Gent Wevelgum in large part thanks to the fact he had a very strong teammate in that front group uh, that, you know, split up very early at Genvago. I mean, he had a, a, a friendly jersey in that group, and that was proved to be decisive in how that final of that race played out. So as strong as uh, Vanderpool and Van Aert are alone, the big takeaway for me so far has been that, you know, it's still a team sport, obviously, and the teams that specialize in the classics still have a hand up, and that's just uh, a quick step. And, you know, to a lesser degree, Trek Segafredo, you know, they've had uh, some big wins, of course, uh, the week before at, at uh, Manana San Remo. You know, they've been locked out a little bit here, uh, you know, with COVID. You know, they didn't race on Sunday and neither did Bora Hansgrove. Um, so, yeah, parody is a good way to describe that. I think it's going to be quite an equal battle. Uh, we also have AG2R Citron with uh, Van Avermaet and Nason right there as well. They've had some top results. So, uh, buckle up. I'm really looking forward to Dwarves and to uh, Flanders. And um, can we say Peter Sagan, uh, who just uh, scored his first win? Don't count him out. Our, our friend Jim, Jim Cotton did a great story a couple of weeks about, uh, ago about that, saying, you know, hey, let's not forget Peter. And Peter, he told me last year uh, in, San, in San Juan in Argentina, you know, with age, it's really the big, big races that motivate me. And he can really go the extra yard for that. And I, that's why he skipped Ken Fevelgen, that's why he's doing Catalonia. Don't be surprised if seen in the mix. Um, and, yeah, I mean, guys, you know, Johan Muzio told us last week, he said, you know, hey, I love these guys attacking and all over the place in Torino and all over the place in these smaller races. But for the riders of this level, there are three races that count in the springtime. They are Milan San Remo. They are the Tour of Flanders, Perry, but obviously Liege for anybody who can get over the hills. If those guys don't win a monument this year, it's not a great year for them. And if Perry Roubaix doesn't happen, they have one race left Sunday, Flanders. Yeah, and I was wondering uh, in E3 Saxo Classic and Harold Becca, when you know you had this front group, Casper uh, Asgreen, you know, Dikita Kupstep was dominating the tactics by having Casper Asgreen off the front, and all the protagonists 
we're catching up to him and catching up to him. And it comes to this Teichenberg like it does every year where we see attacks go. And uh, Walt Van Eric gets on the front and puts on this huge move and seems to blow himself up. And that was another one of those sort of question mark above my head type situations where I was like, okay, um, is this Wout Van Aert, you know, thinking about Flanders and again, Wevelgem and not taking E3, you know, as serious as he wants it? Is this Wout Van Aert maybe not necessarily right at the level he wants to be at? Um, but it was an interesting moment in that race. I felt like the defining moment of that race because Oscarine went on to win attacking out of that group. But I do wonder if Wout Van Aert had made it up there into that final selection over the Tigenberg, if we would have seen a different situation play out. Uh, who do you watch this race and study it? I mean, what was your analysis and, ta- analysis and take on sort of the decisive moments in those final 15K or so at E3? Yeah, I think it's worth remembering, too, that, you know, Venet was chasing back from a puncture. He had punctured out of that lead group. And that's when his teammates saved him. They helped kind of bring him back to that front group. And it just seemed like that uh, Wout perhaps overextended himself there and he probably used more bullets than he thought he did just getting back to that front group. So when he, when he did go, I think he quickly went into the red and had to wave the white flag on that move. Because I think had he not been not flatted out of that group, I think he could have you know, done more of a, an aggressive move and, and had legs to make that stick. It's still it's amazing to me that here we are in 2021, that flat tires and punctures are still a thing. It's like, hasn't the sport figured that out yet? But that's part of cycling. And you just see it time and time again, somebody somewhere punctures and it has a major impact on, on the out, outcome of races. And then, yeah, going into that final uh, play, I mean, just soon it really was, you know, everyone's calling it a masterpiece, a masterclass. And you really have to agree with that description because it was picture perfect tactics. You, know, you had Oscarine, who was kind of like uh, the latest version of Nikki Terpstra in that profile of that team. You know, he's off the front for a long time, uh, you know, taking all the pressure off the guys that I think was Steve R and uh, Lampert were in that group. Excuse me if I, I forget who else was there. Uh, Seneschal. Yeah, Seneschal, sorry. And those guys were just sitting in, obviously, and just a perfect scenario for the whole team. And then when they bring him back, you know, Oscarine goes again, and that just shows you how strong he is. And, uh, you know, we always talk about how Harold Beck is like this indicator of the rest of the classics. And I kind of crunched the, some stats over the last 25 years. And the winner of Harold Becca, 70% of the time, ends up on a podium at Roubaix or Flanders. And several other occasions, I believe it's uh, uh, eight other occasions in the last 25 years, they've won. The winner of Halbeck has won either Flanders or Roubaix. And, of course, on a couple of occasions, Cancellara and Bonin, you know, won all three of those races. And Halbeck really is the race that uh, supersedes, I think, Gant Velgovem and maybe even San Remo. It's not, a, it's not a monument, but it really is that classic that the the cobble bashers, the head to Flanders and Roubaix, they, they love that race. And it, and it's I think the prestige of that race is just just as equal as as Velgovem or San Remo. It's, 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 it's amazing to see how a race that was named after an autostrada has developed into this almost world, you know, almost a monument. I mean, once I was, what year was it? Uh, I think it was the year when, uh, when they changed and they had the new course in Flanders and I was out on the course and there's this guy just, you know, volunteering for the roadblocks or the road control. Right. And, um, and he said, yeah, I'm one of the organizing committee for E3. And I just kind of looked at it at one point and we're just standing there waiting for the race to come, you know, winds blowing. And I said, this is as good time as any. I said, can you confirm, like, was that race actually really named after the old auto route? And he just looked at me and said, 
Yeah, that's what you get when you have a you know a whole bunch of Belgians that hold a meeting late at night in a bar. <laughs> I just I love that one. Um, but it's turned into this you know amazing race and very telling race. Um, so you know we'll we'll see if it holds up uh, uh, on Sunday. Yeah, I always tell people you know who want to go check out European racing to go check out the classics. And if you are going to be there for Ghent Webblegem, you owe it to yourself to get there a few days early to check out Harold Becca as well because it's you know it's on a Friday. It's in this small little town right off of the motorway. It's pretty easy to get to from Ghent and from Brugge, and um, you know the access that you typically get to a rider looking like, at non-COVID year um, is really good. And it's this fun afternoon. You can go check out the climbs. You can bring your bike, and the racing is always really really, really aggressive and solid. And they're taking in the choir, you know, they're taking in a lot of the same climbs as Flanders and it is, it's a really hard race. It, it crowns a worthy champion. Um, guys, you know, after Harald Becca, I was ready to see the quick step continue to play its cards and keep the dominance rolling at Ghent Wevelgem. And that just wasn't the case. In fact, you know, they, they had, they were in a good position that they had Sam Bennett, make this front group with uh, Wout Van Aert and some of the other strong guys. And he made it over the final time up the Kemmelberg, which I was really surprised to see. And then um, it sounds like he had some digestive issues. The TV cameras cut sight of him throwing up in the group. And then it seemed like this innocuous move on the run-in from the base of the Kemmelberg uh, into Vevelgem, and uh, he was gone. Um, what did you guys, What was your guys' take about uh, Quick Steps tactics and how things played out at uh, Gent Webblegum? Well, first, uh, first off, I like to. I'm really impressed with the progress that Sam Bennett has made. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I remember interviewing him when he was the Lantern Rouge in the Tour de France in what 2015 or 16, and you know, the guy could not get over a climb. In Paris Nice, the last weekend, he was in all of the breaks on the climbs. The guy has really been working on his climbing, and he's he's a much more complete rider now. And that I think was shown uh, in a race like Gavelgem being up front, uh, you know, because he does have to go over the Kemmelberg, and that's not easy. Uh, I think the main problem was obviously got sick. The main problem for them was they didn't get anybody else in that group. And I think it would have been a very different race if he didn't have stomach problems and had been in that group. I think then the guys would have had to be doing more attacking, um, and I think it would have been a different final. But in the end, Quickstep didn't have any support there. He wasn't good. Um, and, you know, and that, and that, and that, you know, they, they paid the price, but, you know, at the end of the day, they won two days before Flanders is their objective. I think, I think we're going to, I think come Sunday, it's going to be, I, I'm, I, you know, we know well, one thing we know, we don't know who's going to win. One thing we know, quick step is going to launch somebody far out. Who's it going to be? Yeah. I, I've been surprised at how, uh, how, how well quick step has been racing. And plus you remember they'll have uh, a la Philippe. Uh, racing, uh, Edouard's and, uh, Flanders, another card to play. You know, who could they send you? Know, they have a Steve R, Lambert. Uh, they have so many cards to play. For some reason, I, I, I just thought that they would be, I just thought that Vanderpool and, uh, Van Aert were just so much stronger individually, but it really just is a reminder that teamwork is such a key part of these races and so tactically important. And going back to Ken Velgovim, just quickly, uh, you know, the wind is always a factor in that race. And we've seen the race play out in similar ways. You know, a few years ago, the same thing happened. A group of 20 or 30 went off the front in the first 100 Ks and then never came back. And it was very windy again. Uh, it's one of those races that they, they've expanded the length of the race now. I think it's 250. And yeah, it's a long, hard race. 
uh, and the Kemmelberg is still there. So it's almost a, a mini monument, really, because you can make the argument that, yeah, it's monument distance. Now it's on the Sunday, more prestige. And uh, yeah, it's a great risk. I, I personally just miss being there so much this week. I mean, normally we're holed up somewhere in, uh, in Ghent. We usually get an Airbnb apartment and, uh, you know, it's kind of all in working and uh, squeezing in a few beers and some, uh, you know, Belgian food. But it, it's, it's, you know, I'm just missing these, these topics for the second year in a row. You know, it's, 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 it's so sad. I know. And nothing quite beats that uh, Vevelgam post-race atmosphere where they always have the press room in this cavernous high school gym that's really cold every year and seeing the winner have to like walk into this high school gym that has like basketball hoops on the side of the wall and you know weird like climbing structures and stuff like that and it's it's really chilly and there's all these dour reporters drinking bad tea and eating these bready sandwiches and then like Greg Van Avermaet's up there fielding our questions it's a very special moment in cycling I, I'm with you um I always with with Gen Welbeck, I'm always reminded of how long and painful that stretch from the Kemmelberg back into Wevelgem is because it's flat and twisty and rolling, but there's always either a headwind or a uh, or a crosswind in there. And you know you, they've already raced for over 200k. They've done these climbs, and that to me is always sort of this like separates the men from the boys type situation because it's usually a smaller group. People are going hard and pulling really hard, and it's sort of this like how long can you keep your hand on the on the stove type situation. I remember a few years back when Van Avermaet ended up winning. That was the scene where Nikki Terpstra just let a gap open up to let Peter Sagan try and close it. And that was it. Like all of a sudden Terpstra and Sagan were out of the race and Van Avermet went on to win. Um, this year I was interested, you know, it looked like the guys were all working very well. And on paper, you know, we had to say Wout Van Aert was one of the strongest guys, but there were some really class sprinters up in that front group with uh, Matteo Trentin up there, Giacomo Nizzolo, Sonny Cobrelli, Michael Matthews. I mean, when you looked at the finishing speed of the guys who made the, finish, the, the final group at Gendwevelgem, there was no guarantee that Wout Van Aert was going to be the fastest. So to see him launch his sprint from that far out and hold it, I thought was was a very impressive move on his end. Well, Nizzolo totally botched his sprint. I mean, I, I, I looked at that and I said, okay, obviously Van Aert's the favorite. I'm going to go with Nizzolo. I remember last year when he won this killer hard win stage in, uh, in Paris-Nice. I mean, the, the race was blown apart so many times it wasn't even funny, and he won that stage. He's good in that kind of condition. And this was, I mean, when I when I saw them after the Kemmel, they didn't even have a minute. It was all these big hitters up front with like 30, 40 seconds, and they weren't going that fast. I mean, it was just a grind from there to the finish. And I was like, it's about his reserves and, and freshness and stuff. And what you saw in the last K, all of a sudden, Nozolo, he looked great. And then he like sat up, pulled off to be the last person. And then when the sprint launched, he got like somebody popped off and he had to like essentially, you know, slow down, come around and restart his sprint. That cost him the race. I think he would, he he had a very good chance of winning that race. I'm not going to say he would have because, you know, that's not doing justice to Van Aert. But he, he, I would love to have seen that sprint if he hadn't screwed it up. Watching the women's race, it played out a bit similar, but, um, you know, we're going to talk to Mariana Voss all about her victory in the women's race, something that really blew me away in that race that was her patience. You know, um, Elisa Longo-Borghini attacked over the Camelberg, um, 
Mariana Voss burned a couple matches to get back up to her. Um, and then on the run in into Vevelgem, Borghini attacked again, and there was a, a two-woman breakaway. And that's sort of a situation where a younger rider might see class riders like that go up the road and decide to burn some matches and try to get on the front or try to break, you know, make a move up to them. And Voss just kind of sat in the group and waited for the much larger group to catch on to her group. And I think that that was a situation where experience and confidence played out because, you know, once that group was much bigger, um, they obviously had the advantage over this two-woman breakaway. It wasn't guaranteed. And, you know, Longo Borghini, and I believe it was, uh, I can't remember, it was a live rider, were caught with, like, inside a K to go. I mean, it was, it was a heartbreaking catch. But that's one of those scenarios where you look at someone like Mariana Voss, who's won races in every different type of situation in her career, and you can really say, ooh, she knew what she knew what was going to happen uh, in this situation like that. Hoodie, what was your takeaway from Mariana Voss's win in uh, again Webblegum? Yeah, I agree. It was it was a veteran's experience play the way that she played that finale. Um, you know, because the racing there, I think you know it does come down to strength and numbers. And she just saw the numbers and she made the calculation in her mind that indeed it was going to be kind of come together. And she and she made this amazingly long sprint. Uh, I think more than 250 meters up 300 meters and uh, just showed her strength and, and uh, kind of savvy to, to post up that long of a sprint and, and have the legs to finish it off. And, you know, if you look at how she's done so far this year, I mean, she hasn't been out of the top 10 in any race. In fact, I think she was two podiums and a seventh in her other four races, the three races this year. Uh, you know, it's great to see her win it, you know, back in the day it was like, the story was what race she didn't win. And I think now it really reflects how deep and competitive the women's peloton is by the fact that, you know, it's like, it's like the men's is like half dozen, a dozen potential winners of every race scenario these days. And that makes women's racing that much more exciting to watch. So James, you talked about this earlier, but what are you expecting to see at the tour of Flanders? I mean, we have our storyline set, we have parody, we have Wout Van Aert and Jumbo Visma, very strong to quick step playing the team game, Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, wanting to win, having these explosive accelerations. I mean, what are you expecting to see on Sunday at Flanders? Well, I think we're going to see a big show of um, quick step. I think that's just a given. Um, if, they, if they're if they not out early with somebody big, then they're playing into the hands of the other guys. And they have a guy like Alaphilippe who can uh, – you can, you know, can, can wait and, 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 and have his shot. But I don't, you know, I don't think that Alaphilippe, Vanderpool, uh, Van Aert in a sprint – is a guarantee for Alaphilippe. So, you know, while that's, they have a very good chance of winning with Alaphilippe in a final, they're not going to put all their cards in that. So I definitely think we're going to see some, I think from 60K out, I think it's, they're just going to start throwing it down. Yeah, I was just actually checking my wind app on my phone because uh, earlier in the week I was looking at the wind and they were saying it was going to be a headwind coming back uh, to Odenard. Just looking now, it seems like the wind direction's changed. It's coming from uh, south-southeast. So that means kind of a cross tailwind coming out of that last circuit going back to Odenard. So that will help, I think, the aggression in the race, knowing there's a, a tailwind kind of uh, favors a strong rider or a, a couple of riders off the front have a much better chance of making it to the line with a tailwind as opposed to when there's a headwind working against a group. Uh, so that kind of adds a new wrinkle to the race. Yeah, like James said, I mean, this is like, this is one of the greatest uh, days of the year. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to watch most of the race, hopefully. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a could be anybody's race. You know, I think it's Quipstep versus 
Sagan versus you know the three tenors with Alaphilippe, uh, Van der Poel, Van Aert, uh, with Trek Segafredo in there. Uh, you know, there's always some surprises in these big races too. There's always, uh, you know, sometimes the early break can get some riders out there and they can stay in that group more so at Robay than at Flanders, but it does happen at Flanders. And, uh, yeah, these are the races we live for. And, uh, I'm very excited about what's going to happen on Sunday. Don't, I mean, don't, don't be surprised or disappointed if Eve Lampard wins, you know, he's won what twice doors a couple years ago. So maybe he's matured to the level. He's kept it quiet. He's a perfect guy for quick step to launch. Um, we'll see. It's going to be very exciting. little shout out for um, Philip Gilbert, who's not going to be there. Uh, winner in 2017. We, we kind of forget this is, the, this is the winningest classics rider in activity. He's won so many more classics than anybody else in activity. It's not even funny. And the only one missing is Milan San Remo. He won, he won here in 2017. Roubaix the last winner of Roubaix 2019. But he shattered his knee on that stage one in the Tour de France uh, where, when everybody's crashing in the rain. Still finished but couldn't continue. And it's been a long slog to get back. I talked to him in this spring and, you know, he was in the attacks. He was doing everything he always does, but he said, yeah, it's just been hard. And he just announced he's not going to, not going to be there. He's going to take a break, maybe do the Ardennes. But I mean, yeah, I was going to see him pull out too, but probably the right move. I mean, we've seen riders rush returns from injuries and you could kind of tell that Gilbert just wasn't that same level. I mean, I was at Hoodie and I were there. I'm sure you were there too, James, in 2017 when he did win Flanders. And I think he did he win Harald Becca or was that Van Avermaet? He he was he was doing very well in some of the early classics as well. You could just tell it was like, ah, this guy is on amazing form right now. And when he did that long breakaway win at Flanders, he had broken that down for me. It was such a beautiful race i mean he just you know he knew every turn in that road he knew with the wind direction from each place and he knew he's he just said and this and this goes back to quick step sunday he said once you're out in front you're at an advantage the people behind have to somebody's got to bridge those gaps and once the the leaders and this this is you know where guys like uh uh vanderpool are really at a disadvantage is he doesn't have a mega strong team so he gets isolated and he has to have a team that can can pull back those breaks and 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 if not, once it's you know just the the strong guys chasing, then they're all kind of looking at each other. Well, do I go too deep? If I go too deep now, somebody might counter me. Uh, and it's a whole different game. That's that's the advantage of going off early, and that's why you've seen especially quick stuff for the last ten years in Roubaix and Flanders, throwing somebody out there. Uh, you know, a good sixty k sometimes more. Uh, in Roubaix and Flanders, and it quite often works. Uh, so it's going to be really fascinating. It's it's race science out here. Um, it's not just the strongest guy. You got to be smart, and you got to know these roads, and you just, everything's got to be at 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 the, at the best. That's why it's that's why it's such a great race. It's my favorite race. This is my favorite week of the year, and uh, cannot wait to watch Flanders. Well, Andrew Hood and James Stark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Uh, hey, everyone, let's go hear from Mariana Voss. Spring Classics are back, and Flow Bikes has you covered. Watch the Tour of Flanders this weekend, plus Amstel Gold, Skeldapri, Brabant Appeal, and more live and on demand in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Plus, go inside the race with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and other exclusive content. The cobbles are calling, so don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's F-L-O-bikes.com forward slash velonews okay let's get back to the show 
Okay, on the podcast today, we are so thrilled to have living legend Mariana Voss calling in, and um, we're going to talk to Mariana all about her most recent accolade, which is winning Gent Wevelgem, which I believe is your 232nd career victory. Mariana, I can't think of anything of note that I have done 232 times. Um, congratulations on the big win. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I have to I have to say I lost count myself. Um, these kind of numbers, of course, it's, it's incredible. It's not, not something that I'm uh, thinking of every day. Most of the times I'm just looking forward to the next the, the next goal, um, but of course it's uh, yeah, it's it's nice to look back on uh, on some of those great victories. Well, and it's not often that we get to talk about a career first for you, but that's exactly what your Ghent Wevelgem win was. This was the eighth edition, and this was a race that had uh, eluded you previously. And I'm curious what um, you know what the race had meant to you beforehand. You know, it's a cobble classic; it's a major race. You had never won it before. Um, what did this race? Um, what was the importance or significance of this race before you won it? Um, well, of course, it's it's one of the big uh, classics. It's always one of one of the classics. I uh, I look from the couch, um, and we have had it now. I think it was the tenth edition for women. Um, so it's a relatively <laughs> new race, um, although ten editions is already uh, some time. Um, but yeah, you see it's it's gaining uh, more and more um, attention for women and. Over the last years, uh, it, yeah, it got a very big raise on the calendar, and I'm, um, of course, very happy to to have this one in the pocket as a one of the the big Flemish cobbled hills and echelon classics. Yeah, and it just looked like a very difficult race to begin with. You know, when I I went back and rewatched it last night, and you know, I saw you know Elisa Lanco Bargini attacking over the Kimmelberg, and you went with her, and she got a gap over the top, and and you shut that down. But to me, it really seemed like the most important part of uh, the tactical part of the race came uh, on the run in to Vevelgem after Eper, when Elisa Lanco Bargini and Soraya Soraya Paladin attacked off the front, and you decided to stay in the group. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk us through that decision you know two strong riders go off the front and you decide to hey you know i'm not going to go with them i'm going to stay with the group do you recall what your mindset was or the the thoughts behind that decision at that time well um the initial uh, initial plan was um yeah to to from the team was to get me as fresh as possible to the final um but when that too went up the road uh, of course it wasn't really intentional to have uh to have them get such a big gap and uh, to get such a close finish on the line. But when they had had a, a good advantage, um, yeah, I knew um, I had to gamble and rely uh, on the speed of the group, on rely on my teammates and just stay calm. And um, I also saw that the gap wasn't growing. It wasn't, it wasn't really going back or... Yeah, getting close fast but i i also felt there was a yeah, there was quite a big chance that we would catch them in a in the last kilometer so um yeah then it's just 
to make the decision, okay, I stay calm, I make my best preparation for the for the final sprint. And um, yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, to me, I mean, it seemed like it was a, an exercise in patience and confidence. You know, you've been in a lot of races over the years, and sometimes you can feel if the move is going to stay out there or come back. And it sounds like it sounds like this one could have gone either way. But yeah, you made the decision to stay in and and, um, and it paid off. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, of course, um, you know, when those kind of riders are up the road, it's, uh, yeah, it's not that you let them let them go that easy. I mean, they were strong, they made a very brave and good attack. Um, but it's such a long run into the to the finish that you also know that the group has still quite a big chance. Um, and yeah, then you make that, that kind of decisions. And who knows, um, probably on, on Sunday, this might go totally different and you have to make another decision. What about the decision to start your sprint at 300 meters? I mean, we've seen you sprint from farther out, from closer out. Why was that? Why did that feel like the right moment to go? Oh, yeah, it was pure intuition. I um, was quite in a, in, a, in a good position. It was a very fast run-in. Uh, we had tailwind, um, so we were already on quite a high speed. Um, and, uh, yeah, I normally know that my acceleration is okay, but yeah, you know, the pure power tool for the for the real real sprinters is yeah can be uh, can be not enough. So I I opened up and um, actually when I went and when I saw the two hundred meter sign, uh, I had my I had some doubts myself. Uh, but of course, then there's no way back. Just keep on sprinting and see how for how long you can uh, can keep it. And um, yeah, uh, it was incredible to to feel that with like 20, 10 meters to go, there was still no one on or next to me, on my wheel or next to me. So yeah, then I felt, okay, it's, it's enough. Well, chapeau again. I mean, there were some class sprinters in that group. And when I saw you open it up at that distance, I was like, oh, oh, wow, that that's going to hurt. That's going to really hurt. But, um, you know, Gent Wevelgem, such a long and hard race and all those climbs, it can really take it out of people's legs. And so, um, again, I mean, it was uh, it was a thrilling victory. And, um, you know, the first big win this year for the Jumbo Visma women's team, you know, the first year for the team. I'm curious, you know, what was it like um, around the team dinner table that night uh, celebrating the first team win for uh, for this new squad? Yeah, of course, it was a euphoric atmosphere. Um, with already the win before from Maud Van Aert in the, in the men's team. Um, so, yeah, that gave already some uh, uh, some some really nice vibes in the, in the team. But then, um, yeah, with also the win in the in the women's team, of course we yeah we were really happy and we were um, yeah preparing for for those classics uh, with the whole team. We we're ready to battle, we're ready to fight. Um, but yeah, you also know and we all know uh, that it's not going to be an easy fight. And um, yeah, then of course it's uh, yeah it's it's a great satisfaction when when things work out. Well, we know that it's not always easy to change teams or to get involved with a brand new team. 
Um, we've seen with brand new teams, you know, it takes a couple months, maybe even an entire year to gel and come together between the different riders and sport directors and everything. Yet here it is, you know, I think this is your fourth or fifth race and you're already having a win. I mean, what has the process been like for having the team um, get to know you? And, and what are some of the differences you're seeing with this team compared to, you know, CC Live and Rabobank and the, the teams you've been on previously? Well, uh, of course, a change can can yeah can take some time, but um, actually it went pretty pretty quick. Um, already with the change uh, right into the in the cyclocross season, but uh, yeah, people were so helpful and uh, all the staff and I mean it's the crossover from men's team uh, from the women's team. Everybody is uh, is very helpful, um, so it didn't didn't cost so much energy to to feel welcome and to feel at my place um and then of course yeah with the start of the season we had some some get-togethers and it's good to get to know each other and yeah get get to know how the communication lines work and how everybody is but yeah i think the most important thing is that everybody yeah was really was and is really excited to to raise in the in the yellow and black and um and yeah, just working really hard to make the best of what we can do. You know, Mariana, how would you describe the dynamics inside the women's pro peloton in these early races? You know, in the first uh, big races of the season, Omlu Petnusblad and uh, Strada Bianca, we saw SD Works, you know, not just win the races, but be able to put a number of riders in the front group. Um, then, you know, we saw Live Cycling take a win at La Samian. Aliza Longo-Borghini winning Trofeo Alfredo Binda. What does it feel like inside of the women's peloton right now? And, and what can you say about the, the level of competition? Well, if you, if you might have followed it um, and what, what I feel in, uh, in the bunch, the, the level is really high. So it's very intense racing from start to finish. Um, have to be alert. Um, you have to be ready, and I think there are so many teams on, on such a high level that um, yeah, the, you just push each other to to the max. And um, yeah, I expect some uh, explosive and uh, a very interesting racing uh, coming up in the next week. After those first few races where SD Works was so dominant, I guess I, as a fan, expected to see that dominance continue through the cobbled classics and these other races and it hasn't i mean other teams and other riders have won what do you think the biggest difference has been between uh what we saw at omlu Petnusblad and um strada bianca and what we've seen in the last few races well of, of course there there are many strong teams and with as the works they're still still strong so i i don't assume that they're gone i mean um they're still at a very high level and you know, it's it's such a difficult sport that when things go maybe one or two percent less, then it might be that difference that you're there or totally not there. Um, so yeah, I I just uh, focus on uh, on the next race, and yeah, I think all the teams are ready to to go for it, and um, with the depth in in the different teams. You're going to be. You're going to have very interesting fights. Yeah, and one thing that 
always bums me out is that we don't always get to see all of that fight, you know, with the broadcast of the women's races. Typically, we get to see, you know, the last 30 kilometers, sometimes less. And we miss the opening sometimes 100 kilometers or 70, 80 kilometers. And I'm curious, what are we missing when we don't get to see that? What are some of the dynamics that are going on in these women's races early in the event that we don't get to see on the broadcast? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot, and it's not only in the women's peloton, but it's also in the men's peloton. Um, what you don't see in television is, is how difficult the positioning is, especially in those cobbled or Flemish classic classics where you have to be in position all the time, uh, where it becomes narrow or where you, when you hit a cobbled section or when you hit a climb. Um, because, well, in ghent Wilkemer we've seen like in the men's bunch that a very early break makes it to the line. Um, but that's not that often. Um, but if you're too far back in the, in the front uh, or in the, in the, in the early, yeah, in the first hour of the race and you miss a decisive moment or you're behind a crash or you're in a crash or um, when it costs too much energy to bridge across uh, to a next echelon, it can cost you the race. So there is so much happening and there's so much work done also by domestiques um, that this plays such an important role uh, going into the final. Um, and yeah, I think if you, if you're in the bunch, uh, every, every girl, every racer, every rider over the last races will tell how difficult, uh, yeah, this, this first hour of a, of a race can be. I know. And it's my sincere hope that the broadcasts do get figured out so that we get to, we do get to see the earlier parts of these races. Cause I always ask riders about, Hey, what did we miss in the first, you know, 60, 80 K of this race? And they'll tell me some amazing story of a breakaway or a positioning battle or something like that. And it's just like, ah, oh, geez, <laughs> I wish we got to see that. I mean, that's one of the, the larger issues in, in women's cycling that I've seen um, a lot of online conversation about this year, including the, um, the prize money um, conversation, which has been another um, big issue. And then, you know, the biggest issue I feel like I've been following in women's cycling this year um, has been this, uh, you know, this high profile investigation and then um, sanctioning around an abuse case with a Belgian health mate cycle of team. And it gained a lot of headlines and a lot of um, online conversation. The UCI spent over a year investigating this team. There was a three-year retroactive suspension on the team's director, Patrick Van Gansen. But afterwards, there was a lot of criticism about the investigation, the punishment, and real deep conversations about safety within the women's peloton. And I'm curious, as someone who has spent, you know, the last better part of the last 10, 15 years in this sport, um, what did you make of this investigation and then the um, punishment that was handed out? And what it means for the women's peloton in uh, in 2021? Well, of course, it's very important that these cases are, are things um, that are looking into really well. And um, I believe the UCI does a, a very good job investigating this. And they, yeah, they're um, there to make the right sanction. Um and I think it's also good that there is discussion about it because yeah, some things take place in, in, in sports and of course sometimes it's a thin line but um when the line is crossed um there have to be sanctions and 
um, yeah, I think more and more girls are uh, able to speak out, and um, of course that that's always good, and there's always. It's even even better that the now it's like uh, this union side, the, the cyclist alliance that also stands up for for the rights and for for the girls um, that yeah now finally um, speak out. So yeah, I'm I'm of course uh, aware that some some of that the sanction might be. Um, if there might be a debate about the, the length of the sanction, um, but at, at least um, I think it's it's very good that this is all uh, looked into and that it, there has been a, a very good and deep investigation. Mm-hmm. When you look at the major issues and talking points in women's cycling in 2021, where do you feel like there's the most room for improvement? Where would you like to see the most room for improvement in 2021 and in the next few years uh, around women's cycling? Well, I'm uh, actually very happy with where women's cycling is at this moment. If you look at the development over the, over the last decade, it's, it's, it's huge. And um, I think the biggest win is, uh, is the live broadcast. Uh, people are more and more able to follow women's cycling Um Big sponsors, the cycling industry is stepping in, um, so more and more people see the value and also see how beautiful the sport is. And um, yeah, that that's a, a great compliment for everybody in the sport. And we'll just do what we we do and love most, and that's uh, bike racing and try to make it as exciting as possible. Excellent. Well, the Tour of Flanders is coming up this weekend. And that will be obviously, you know, big race on your calendar. We're still waiting to see what happens with Paris Roubaix, whether it goes forward or not. But uh, last question for you, Marianne. I mean, what are you expecting to see in the Tour of Flanders this year from the women's peloton? Well, um, I'm prepared. Prepared for a very hard race um, over the over the last races. Yeah, like I said before, the level is so high that you can't just wait and hide uh, in the bunch and see what's going on in the final. Uh, you'll have to be alert and attentive all the time. And um, Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Of course, after Ghent, uh, the motivation is really high, so um, looking forward to the weekend. Well, Mariana Vos, thank you so much for coming on the Velnews Podcast. We, of course, were going to be watching you. Keep our eyes out for that 233rd career victory, uh, even though Sounds like you may have stopped counting. We're still counting here. We have the Mariana Voss count going, um, and, and we'll continue to follow you. Thank you. Thank you for the talk.